This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line from the US is Dr. Nicola Rinaldi, who has a PhD in biology from MIT. Since experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea herself, Dr. Rinaldi has been on a mission to spread awareness of the condition and how to recover. She published her book, No Period, Now What?, which was updated in March of 2019 to be more health at every size aligned. In addition, Dr. Rinaldi performed the largest survey to date of women who likewise experienced amenorrhea. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dr. Rinaldi, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It is our pleasure and I've got to say, wow. <laughs> um, so you've got a PhD in biology from MIT. Let's delve into that a little mm -hmm. bit. We're sure. talking general biology. So it's actually in what's called computational biology, which is a combination of biology, statistics, and computer programming. Um, so I chose that field because I wanted something that would let me work part-time or work from home because I knew that I wanted a family at some point. Yeah. Um, and I actually loved every aspect of it, you know, learning the statistics and the programming as well as the as biology. Um, and I think all three aspects have really helped me in my, uh, in my career since then. Well, I've got to say, the computational part would see you in good stead to look through the mess of some studies and to see to tease out the the wheat from the chaff, as they say. Yes, exactly, <laughs> and that's that's been very helpful as I've done. You know, not only the research for the book, but um, I also really enjoy kind of myth busting and uh, doing that since then. So, being able to read and really understand the statistics in the in the science that's coming out is incredibly helpful for that. Okay, let's let's delve into hypothalamic amenorrhea. We've discussed this on FX Medicine. We like to get various viewpoints so that people can make their own decisions for treatment. Hypothalamic amenorrhea, how's it diagnosed and what's its etiology? So it's kind of all in the name. So hypothalamic amenorrhea um, is amenorrhea or a missing period. Um, typically, it means three months or more is kind of the standard that's used. Um, and it's of hypothalamic origin. So the hypothalamus is a major control center in your brain. Um, it takes in inputs from all over your body, including um, information from your stomach in terms of the mechanical receptors that tell it how much you've eaten. Um, various hormones that are generated as you eat. So if you eat fat or protein or carbs, different hormones are generated and um, those travel through your bloodstream to your hypothalamus. Um, it takes in information about your stress levels in terms of your cortisol levels or um, it, it, it can sense the beta endorphins. So it basically collects all of this information from your body and then sends out signals that 
basically tells the rest of your body systems what to do. So it sends out thyrotropin-releasing hormone to adjust your thyroid. It sends out corticotropin-releasing hormone to adjust your stress, uh, the the production of stress hormones from your adrenals. it sends out gonadotropin-releasing hormone that adjusts that that then goes to your pituitary and leads to secretion of follicle-stimulating hormone or luteinizing hormone, which are sort of the two major hormones that control your reproductive cycle. Yeah. Um, it also secretes ADH, antidiuretic hormone, which controls the water balance. Um, and it can also sort of adjust where your body is expending energy. So. Um, how much it's how much energy it's using to keep you warm, um, you know. So, so it, it's basically a master regulator in the tr- in in the sense that it takes in all these inputs and sends out outputs. So, in terms of the amenorrhea, what generally happens is it's usually usually the strongest um, criteria or the the strongest factor is underfueling. So, not eating enough to support everything that your body is doing. And when that happens and your hypothalamus is sensing that it's not getting enough energy, um, it basically tries to shut things down to conserve energy because it only has a given amount to work with. And so it needs to do things like pumping your blood and making you breathe and letting your brain work. Um, so then it shuts down systems that are not as uh, not as imperative. Um, your reproductive system is one of the top things. It's a nice yes. to have, not a need to have. Um so basically, when it senses this lack of energy, it, it shuts things down, including your reproductive system. It can decrease fat storage, which we tend to see in our society as a positive, although it's not, uh, not always the case. Um, it, keeps you, it, it stops keeping you as warm, so people that are experiencing this often feel really cold. Um, you can have problems with brittle hair and nails because it doesn't choose to spend energy on building those things. Um, one of the major impacts can be issues with bone density because, again, there's not enough energy, um, and there are hormone, the hormones in the reproductive cycle actually play a role in bone density as well, so it's kind of a, even a double whammy there. Um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 a hugely important organ, and when we're not eating enough, um, or it can also be suppressed through stress, um, but it generally tends to be mostly from underfueling, and then with some level of either psychological stress or um, ex- or stress from exercise layered on top of that. Um, sometimes in a in a way that in a synergistic way. So basically, instead of just adding those things together, they amplify each other and make things even worse. Right. And, you know, normally these organs are based on a negative feedback. And, you know, the only one that's based on a positive feedback is really in pregnancy where it just says, go. When we're talking about basically a misread negative feedback, is that is that what's happening here? So that you've got misread signals between the hypothalamus and the pituitary. So I think it's actually more um, that the signals from the hypothalamus are dampened. So we know that in hypothalamic amenorrhea, the gonadotropin-releasing hormone is normal. In a a normal cycle, the gonadotropin-releasing hormone is released in pulses. Right. Um, So I think that the it's about every four hours, and you know the amplitude is X, whatever it is. Yeah. In somebody that has HA, the pulses are much further apart. So then the the pituitary is not getting the stimulation that it needs to then generate the the necessary follicle stimulating hormone, um, which is what sort of starts the the menstrual cycle going. Right. And I'm also very interested in what you said about prioritizing, which is really interesting when you think about humans as an animal. 
We see, mm -hmm. for instance, and I'm going to talk in the Australian instance, kangaroos will expel yeah. um, uh, even a fetus if um, famine occurs. Um, mm -hmm. Kangaroos can go for years without um, going into estrus if the situation is dire in the environment, which will basically waste energy on progeny. Um, mm -hmm. So this prioritising, I mean, that's, that's really quite a fantastical thing. How the heck does it prioritise fertility at the bottom below survival of, you know, other organs and, you know, even, even fat storage, say? Well, I mean, I think if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense because if, um, you know, if it prioritized fertility over survival, then yes, you get to have your baby maybe, but maybe. then you die afterwards. You yeah. can't take care of the baby. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I think from an evolutionary perspective as well, um, you know, certainly our species has experienced many you know, many times through the ages of famine. And one of the one of the common things that women will hear is, oh, you're never going to get your period back or, oh, you know, your hypothalamus is broken. But in our species history, like I said, we have famines and then we've managed to reproduce afterwards. So our in our history, we actually have people who have been able to get their periods back after a famine because if they weren't, then we wouldn't be here, basically. Yeah, so, yeah. Just going through some other pathologies, I guess, that we have to be aware of, things like pituitomas and, and things like that that can really mess up the actual mechanics of the neural yeah. systems. Um, can we go through yeah. just a few of those just so that we get them out of the way so that we know that what we're dealing with is an otherwise healthy woman? Yes. Yeah. So I think there are definitely other causes of amenorrhea and they should absolutely be ruled out. So there's hyperprolactinemia, um, which is a, basically an elevated prolactin level. You can experience this when breastfeeding. Um, and that's actually one of the ways that our body shuts down our menstrual cycles when we are breastfeeding so that we don't have too many babies right in a row. Um, it can also come from oh, what's called a microadenoma, which is a small growth on the pituitary gland that can increase the secretion of prolactin that then shuts down your menstrual cycle. So um, prolactin is definitely something that should be checked when you're doing a workup for amenorrhea. Um, other causes can be uh, if your thyroid is totally out of whack, that can also suppress your reproductive hormones. So thyroid hormones are another good thing to be checking when you, you know, if you are missing your period. Um, it can be due to something called Asherman syndrome, which is scarring in the uterus that can come after some kind of uterine trauma. Um, so somebody that's had a C-section and then, it, you know, is not getting their period or if you've had a DNC for some reason, yeah. um, that can be a potential cause. I, I, it's not that frequent, but it's definitely something that else that should be ruled out. Yeah. Um, diminished ovarian reserve slash menopause is another possibility for someone why someone might stop getting their period. Um, that can also be, that can be ruled out by checking the reproductive hormones. Um, and hypothalamic amenorrhea can, you, you can get a, you can get a stab at it by looking at the reproductive hormones. Um, mm. Specifically, the luteinizing hormone tends to be quite low, um, right. but that's not always the case. So there's no sort of gold standard for diagnosis. Right. Um, okay. The other, the other condition, the, the two other conditions that are quite common are polycystic ovarian syndrome, which are also known as PCOS. Um, and congenital adrenal hyperplasia or uh, non-classic congenital, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, so those sort of manifest with high levels of androgens. Um, 
or 17-hydroxyprogesterone in the case of the uh, adrenal hyperplasia. Um, so those are all sort of things that you can look at via blood work and can be, you know, ruled in or ruled out. Um, PCOS is an interesting one because it overlaps quite a lot in terms of diagnosis with HA. Um, hypothalamic amenorrhea is, uh, I like to abbreviate as HA because it's, it gets a little bit easier to yeah. say. Um, so the... Technically, the diagnostic criteria for PCOS are threefold. One is amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea, which is cycles that are longer than um, 90 days, I think, or maybe 35, 35 days. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little that, mixed up here. That's okay. Um, and then uh, polycystic ovaries. So when you do an ultrasound, you'll see um, lots of follicles on the ultrasound. It's important. It's really important when you're trying to distinguish between the two to get the diagnostic criteria correct. Um, the sort of most up-to-date research suggests that for, to diagnose PCOS, um, it, somebody should have 25 or more follicles on one ovary. Um, you can't just look at it and say, oh, that's a lot of follicles, because women with HA actually also tend to have multi-cystic ovaries. Yeah. So that's something that's kind of, you can't really use uh, as a, um, a way to distinguish between the two conditions. And the levels of androgens in PCOS? The, so the androgen level is the third one. So it can either gotcha. be sort of a physical manifestation of high androgens or biochemically seeing that in your blood work. So in a woman that sort of been maybe under fueling, doing a lot of exercise, um, and has amenorrhea, I really strongly believe that it's imperative to get that blood work done. And if you're not seeing elevated androgens, it's almost certainly HA versus being PCOS. Right. You mentioned earlier fat storage. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if hypothalamic amenorrhea might have a different um, preponderance for where the fat is stored. You know, the thighs versus the abdomen, that sort of thing. Do we see that? I mean, we're certainly aware of, for instance, PCOS and you get, well, the classic picture is the central adiposity, mm -hmm. the apple-shaped thing. That's not always the case, though. So I haven't seen anything to suggest sort of a, a distribution of fat stores in somebody that has HA. Great. What I do know is that I was actually really surprised when I did the survey for my book because I asked the question about, have you ever lost weight in the past? Um, and 82% of the survey respondents said they lost at least 10 pounds, which is just around five kilograms. Yeah. Um, and I found that really surprising because many of these women were in small bodies to begin with. And, you know, having that level of weight loss was way more than I expected. Um, but I think that it, that kind of speaks to the ongoing energy deficit because obviously being in an energy deficit can cause weight loss. And then if you're just maintaining that lost weight for a long period of time, you've probably been under fueling that whole time. Um, right. So that's a, that seems to be a very common association. Okay. And so let's go into recommendations for recovery. Uh, I mean, it seems like we're jumping ahead here, but I'm going to sort of do a jump back and forth. So um, sure. with, with regards to recommendations, underfueling seems a bit simplistic to just say, oh, well, overfuel, because there's so many points along the way. You mentioned digestion. We've spoken about stress and how the sympathetic system, mm -hmm. um, nervous system is activated. So how do you approach that from a holistic perspective? So I think it really does have to start with the with proper nutrition. Um, so I do uh, I do have a certain number of calories that I recommend in my book. Um, I don't know how you feel about talking about calorie levels. 
So my general recommendation for recovery um, is eating about 2,500 calories a day. Um, it can it can vary a little bit. Somebody who's quite short can eat a little bit less. Somebody who's tall can eat a little bit more. Um, but that's based on a study done by Anne Laux and her colleagues, where they looked at the number at the energy level based on a body's fat-free mass in order to be what they called energy replete, and that turned out to be um, 45 calories per kilogram of lean body mass. So. For a woman who is sort of about five foot five foot six, which is about 166 centimeters or thereabouts, um, that works out to be approximately 2,500 calories if she's active. I mean, it, it gets it gets really complicated. There's you know there's kind of a lot that goes into the equation, and yeah. I, I do talk about it in detail in my book. Um, but sort of the general take home message is it's about 2,500 calories, and that's a lot more than we're usually told we need. Um, you know, most places say you, you need 2,000 calories a day, and if you you know if you're looking to lose weight, you should eat 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day. Um, so for a lot of women that can feel like a huge jump, um, but it is. I mean, I, so I've been I've been working in this field for almost 15 years now, and you know I've I've helped so many women recover their periods through using this level of energy, um, and it it may kind of decrease a little bit over time, but particularly when you're working to get your period back. Um, you need to really baby your hypothalamus. It's kind of like, I think of it kind of like Newton's first law where an object in motion stays in motion yep. an object at rest stays at rest. Yep. Um, so a lot of times women can sort of have a basic level of underfueling, a lot of exercise for a long time and still maintain a period. Um, if they're not on birth control pills, that gets into a whole different area that maybe we can chat about in a minute. Um, but once her period goes away, she then often has to gain a bit more weight eat more, exercise less than she was at the point where she lost her period because the hypothalamus has to do more work to actually kind of get re- get started again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I need to um, ask the point of stress. I mean, women carry the major burden of stress, let's face it. So when we're talking about a hormonal trigger or a hormonal player in the game, prolactin, um, how... Mm-hmm. How much do you work on stress and managing stress in women to uh, um, soothe, if you like, their prolactin levels? So most of with HA actually tend to have low prolactin levels, so I, that right. doesn't seem to be too much of an hmm. issue. Okay. Um, just generally in terms of stress, um, I think that's actually the hardest part of the equation to really work on because, as you say, we tend to be in a very um, goal-oriented society and, you know, you've got all these things piled on top of you. Um, but so, you know, we we do talk about um, things like maybe doing some yoga or meditating or, you know, just do, doing doing what you can to remove stress from your life. Um, but I'm not a psychotherapist or anything like that. So I often will say, okay, you, you, you know, maybe going to see a therapist is something that's going to be beneficial. Um, acupuncture can certainly be helpful in terms of reducing stress levels and, you know, helpful in that way. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not a great one with the sort of stress management. I think there are other people out there that are better at uh, sort of handling that aspect of the, of the problem than I am. Yeah. Um, forgive me, but I'm concerned about my knowledge here. Mm-hmm. So I thought that stressors uh, had a great effect on promoting prolactin. 
but these ladies have lower prolactin. Is that because of a misread? Is that because the, their hypothalamus is just not kicking in? Or is this just a totally erroneous um, concept? So I'm actually not aware of any connection between stress and prolactin. Gotcha, um, okay. So what I've seen is that stress increases cortisol levels, mm -hmm. um, which and that can suppress the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the um, and, and the reproductive organs, so the ovaries. Um, so I'm not I'm not aware of a connection there. And like I said, most most women that I see where they've had prolactin tested, it does tend to be on the lower side. So in this case, I don't know that there's necessarily a connection there. There may be in other um, you know in other etiologies. Gotcha. What about a set point? I've heard about there being a set point with regards to weight management and trying to lose weight, that it's hard to shift this set point, which we tend to gravitate back towards. Is there a, you know, a hypothalamic set point that, that you, we've got to sort of have this nutrient intake to override and then we have to build upon it as, as the woman recovers from amenorrhea? So I do think that there is something to the set point set range theory. I think there's um, there's been a lot of discussion about it. There was actually a really good review that I read um, when I was working on the book that sort of looked at four different theories uh -huh. of, you know, there's the sort of set point versus, well, that doesn't necessarily make sense because, um, you know, body sizes have changed quite a bit over, you know, over ages. So, yeah, yeah. you know, having a genetic set point is maybe not necessarily the case. Maybe it's a set range and maybe we can do things to adjust that range. So it's, it's actually a really interesting field. Um, but what I do, what I do tend to find in women that have HA is that they often, like, like we talked about, they've often had a, a fairly significant weight loss in the past. Right. And what tends to happen is that um, if that was, you know, that was typically around their set range and it takes getting back to that point um, or maybe a little bit more for the period to be restored. Um, obviously, you know, there's there's so many nuances in this. I mean, somebody can, there are women that have been far above their set range and then, you know, come down and maybe come down too far. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it, it, it's, I mean, it's a very individual, um, it, it's very individual as is so much of this area. Um, but just as a general rule, women kind of have to get back to the weight that they were at sort of when they were just eating freely and not super obsessive about exercise. Um, because that tends to happen, you know, in, it can be high school or college or maybe post-college. Um, for me, it was the end of graduate school and I was exercising a lot and decided I needed to change my body size. I decided I needed, you know, wanted to lose some weight. So I cut my calories significantly. Um, and then the next month I went off the pill to try and get pregnant and I didn't get a period. So, um, you know, I think it's sort of that trying to manipulate our body um, to yeah. sort of match what society thinks that yeah. can really actually get us into a lot of trouble. Now, you were talking about um, having children and we need to ask the question about birth control pills. Do they help with recovery? Mm -hmm. So birth control pills... Um, you know, they can be helpful for women who does not want to conceive children. You know, it's it's certainly a viable option for that. Um, the problem, one of the problems with it is that it masks a missing period. So you get a bleed from being on birth control pills every month if you're doing the, you know, three weeks on, one week off kind of thing. Yep. Um, and 
you know, if that goes away, that's a super, super red flag that something is wrong with your system. Um, but other than that, you know, you can be completely unaware that there's something wrong because you get this bleed every month and, you know, you think everything's fine. Um, it's not an ovulatory bleed, so it's not actually a period. It's just a pill-induced bleed. Yeah. So that's one of the issues with it. Um, I've also seen some doctors prescribe the pill to women who have HA saying, oh, it'll fix everything. And it's like, no, it, it doesn't actually fix anything. It, again, it's just an artificial bleed. Yeah. And it does nothing whatsoever to alter the underlying hormonal system to then make you get a period when you stop taking them. I mean, you will get that last pill bleed, but it does nothing to fix your hypothalamus. So it's really not at all useful in this situation. And it's definitely not good to just give somebody pills because their period is missing. I think it's really important to work on the underlying issues um, rather than just saying, here, take the pill and come back to me when you want to get pregnant because that can, you know, that can cause it. It, it can actually be difficult for somebody to get pregnant who has HA because um, your body needs energy to fuel a pregnancy. So you can have trouble with, you know, your lining doesn't get thick enough. It takes you a long time to ovulate if you ovulate at all. Um, it can even cause issues with in vitro fertilization. So right. I think it's really, really important um, for somebody that's experiencing HA to actually address the underlying issue of underfueling and or stress and or exercise-induced stress. Gotcha. Okay, so let's move on to exercise-induced stress because this is a big issue. Mm -hmm. Are the recovery requirements um, different for the elite athlete or the professional athlete compared to the weekend warrior? What's happening here? So that's that's a really interesting question. So for, for somebody who's a recreational athlete, um, what my recommendation is is basically cut out the high-intensity exercise because that in induces uh, changes in your cortisol, it increases cortisol levels quite significantly. And that in and of itself can be enough to continue suppressing your hypothalamus. So I've, I've seen a number of women who've, who've started eating more, you know, eating theoretically enough to get their periods back, and they just don't while they're continuing the high-intensity exercise. They cut out the high-intensity exercise and then get their period back within a couple weeks or, you know, a couple months. I mean, the time frame varies from person to person. But it really does seem like the high-intensity exercise and the cortisol-induced changes based on that can keep your hypothalamus suppressed. Gotcha. So I've seen other practitioners say, well, it's different for elite athletes. Um, but, you know, I've worked with a few elite athletes, and they've also found that they've had to follow the same recommendations of basically cutting out the high-intensity exercise. Um, you know, you can certainly try just eating more um, and, you know, really making sure that you're fueling properly. But I think that the rest itself is, is important. Um, and I don't know of physiological differences between a recreational athlete versus an elite athlete that would mean you would actually need fewer calories or you would, you know, respond differently to, to stress. So I think that would actually be a, an area that would be very interesting to research. Um, 
I do often point to a study that was done in Sweden a few years ago where they looked at elite athletes and these women were all eating about 3,500 calories a day and doing 1,000 calories a day worth of exercise. Um, Some of them had their periods and some of them didn't. And so the researchers were interested in further understanding, well, what's the difference between the two groups? It seemed like on the surface, it seems that they're all this, you know, their energy balance is the same. So what's going on? Um, so they looked at what they called the within-day energy balance, and they found so they computed on an hourly basis how much energy are they taking in, how much are they expending, um, and they actually found that the women without periods were in an energy deficit for four hours more per day than those that did have their periods, which I find absolutely fascinating. So it's kind of a, an indictment of the whole intermittent fasting idea, particularly you know for um, for athletes anyway. Um, so it's basically, it, and it's a it's a thing that's fairly common in women with HA. So there's a lot of women who get up in the morning, um, you know, sort of get ready, go and do their exercise, go to work, and then maybe they'll eat something at maybe. that point. Yeah. But they're getting into a huge energy deficit because they've, you know, their body's been using fuel the whole time they were sleeping, and then obviously even more with moving around, you know, doing the daily movement and then the exercise on top of it. So. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's sort of an indication that, you know, even elite athletes are experiencing this kind of energy deficit and issues with it. So, you know, I'm not convinced that there is a, a biological difference that, that's meaningful there. Right. Nicola, what about body composition in this group and indeed any group of women? You were mentioning uh, earlier on about uh, women who suffered HA having a five kilogram weight loss some time previously. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. When you're talking about regain of weight, what about body composition versus just BMI? I guess I'm concerned about lean muscle mass here versus total body mass. So that's an interesting question. There, I know there are some studies and I've seen people say that, you know, it can be just, just a drop in body fat that can cause amenorrhea and therefore you just need to increase your body fat by a couple percentage points to get it back. Right. Um, I, I haven't really noticed that it's sort of that specific. Okay. Um, it seems to me to be much more about fueling your body properly and sort of getting back to where your set point is. Um, I do think that there, you know, our our fat is actually a hormone secreting organ. Yes, it secretes yes. leptin. It secretes adiponectin. So our body can use that. Our, our hypothalamus senses that. So I think in, often we do need to sort of get back to the level of body fat that we were at previously. So that can mean for somebody that has been, um, you know, bodybuilders, for example, that have increased their lean body mass quite significantly, mm-hmm. um, they might need to increase their fat mass um, to kind of get back to that point where the, you know, where the leptin signaling is working properly. The thing is, you know, we, we, we concentrate so much on lean muscle mass as being the, the health indices, if you like. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain amount of fat that we need for our bodies to work. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. too often, particularly, I mean, I shouldn't be saying, I'm certainly not including myself in this group, but elite athletes talk about the lean muscle mass and that. And yet it's the fat that will enable them to indeed have a period. So um, mm-hmm. there's, there's got to be this nurturing period. And as you say, you've basically got to, got to nurture your hypothalamus. 
Yes, exactly. Um, so, I mean, obviously, what, what somebody chooses to do depends on where they are in their life. Um, you know, I I work a bit with uh, runner Tina Muir. Um, I don't you, I don't know if you heard her story at all. It it, it went viral for a while here in the U.S. Right. She's a, a, a a runner from Great Britain um, who was an elite and decided she wanted to get pregnant. And so she actually stopped running for a while um, in order to do that. Um, I know there were women who were able to run marathons and get pregnant. And, you know, it just speaks to how, you know, all our bodies are different. Um yeah. You know, in so in so many ways. I mean, people can have amenorrhea at a range of different sizes, body fat levels, uh, you know, athletic levels, everything. I mean, it's 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 a very unique. Um, you know, we're each unique in individuals, and so there's there's no there's no magic number in any of this. Um, and I, you know, there have been other stories that have come out recently. Um, Mary Kane talking about how you know she was basically t- continually told to lose weight, and it ended up making her very unhealthy. And I think that um, changing the focus uh, in athletics yes. from body size to function, I yes. think, would be really valuable. Yes. Um, you know, because there are absolutely long-term fairly serious consequences of um, amenorrhea and, you know, starvation and sort of all of the other symptoms that, you know, the whole rel- relative energy deficiency in sports, um, you know, that cluster of symptoms that can come with the underfueling. There's a few athletes that I've spoken to here in Australia, and indeed they, they talk about how the recovery recommendations go against what is commonly um, prescribed as healthy advice. Um, so mm-hmm. how can this be right? You know, like what, what does life look like after recovery? How do they continue? So I, I, I think that's very true. I mean, we, we're sort of, there's this idea in sort of health and nutrition at the moment that, you know, you should only eat X amount. You shouldn't eat, you know, foods X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, you need to exercise every day, but, the thing is, you, it, it is possible to take those healthy behaviors too far, and that's when you end up with yep. relative energy deficiency in sport or hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, so one has to kind of, as, as we've already talked about, you kind of have to push back a little bit in the opposite direction to kind of get to that middle point of actually really being healthy. So the recovery recommendations in and of themselves, you know, 2,500 calories a day, no high-intensity exercise, that's not that's not necessarily beneficial for the long term, certainly on the exercise front. I mean, it's it's very clear in all the research that exercise is beneficial and healthy sure. for the long term. Um, but it has to be properly fueled exercise because when you're exercising in an unfueled manner, then you have all these other negative health consequences. Um, so I think life after recovery is actually kind of amazing because I think one of the things that people tend to learn through the recovery process is that you don't actually have to control your eating as much as we are all told that we need to. And, you know, you can take a day or two off exercise and your body is not going to suddenly fall apart. The world's not going to end. So it ends up being a place where you know, once you've recovered, you just kind of live your life and you exercise as you want to. And, you know, if you don't feel like exercising or you're sick, you don't exercise and you eat freely, you eat what you want to. Um, you know, body sizes tend to be stable um, when we're really listening to our hunger and fullness cues. Um, so sort of following the intuitive eating model. Mm. Um, so it actually ends up being 
for many people, it ends up being a much more enjoyable place to be than the time when they felt like they had to micro-control every morsel that was going into their mouth and exercise for hours a day every day. Can I drill down a little bit into the types of foods that we that we need to be nourishing our bodies with? You spoke about intuitive eating, mm-hmm. and, and very often in in a lot of the population, that intuitive eating has gone out of out of the window because of marketing. So they're eating the fast yeah. foods and the, and the high caloric, poor nutrient dense foods. So. How do you change that picture in your patients? And indeed, what sorts of foods, when we're talking about proteins, fats, and carbs, what types of foods should we be favoring versus what types of foods avoiding? So for recovery, um, it's actually interesting because the calorie-dense foods tend to be the best ones for recovery because you can get a good caloric punch in a small volume. Um, So I think that those foods actually are helpful for recovery. You know, I'm not going to tell somebody go out and eat McDonald's for every single meal. I mean, that's, you know, that's not going to be good for everybody. But, I mean, for anybody, sorry. Mm, Um, But, you know, eating a slice of pizza or having some ice cream or a cookie, you know, that's a lot of calories in a small volume. And that's much easier to do than sort of eating, you know, the quote unquote healthy food, you know, a big salad. You have to eat a lot of salad to make up for, you know, to make up one cookie. Um, So I think we tend to, again, HA is kind of about having taken healthy behaviors too far. So there there tends to be, you know, almost an aspect of orthorexia to it in a yes. lot of cases yes. or, you know, anorexia, that, that kind of yep. thing. Yep. And so it's kind of pulling back from that and realizing that, um, you know, yes, you can eat some of these foods and it's actually going to be fine. I mean, you know, I think you're obviously you're going to be unhealthy if you're eating cookies all day, every day, but equally you're going to be unhealthy if you're eating broccoli all day, every day. So, you know, I think um, a nice balance between whole foods, um, you know, fruits, vegetables, and, you know, a treat every now and again, it, you know, it's not, um, you know, I think we've come to a very black and white place in yes. our society where it's exactly. like either you eat healthy or you eat unhealthy. It's like there, there can be a balance. And I think that that's kind of what's missing in a lot, in, in a lot of the discussion about nutrition. I love the, um, the saying, everything in moderation, especially moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when you're talking about these women that are, you know, high, they seem to be highly driven. They seem to be highly controlled. Do yes. you find in your research that there are, and this may be digging a little bit deep, but dare I say the word personality types, the A-type personality, are they more at risk of HA? So that is not my research, but there are um, there are studies that have been done that have found that to be the case, that women that have HA tend to be sort of more of the type A controlling perfectionist. Yep. Um, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely something that people have found in other studies, not not my work. So how do you tell a woman like that to calm down? you show her lots of evidence of how um you know how this works because i think that's one of the things that people tell me they really like about my book is that i have the data to support the claims that i'm making so the survey that i did of 300 women i you know i i asked them all sorts of questions i mean it was this this is a substantial survey um 
So, you know, I asked about how long did it take to recover? What kinds of things did you do during your recovery? Um, and I, you know, I've continued, I continue to have that data set to go back to. So it, it's, I think supporting my claims with hard evidence is yeah. one thing. And also um, the book includes lots of stories of other women who have gone through this. So seeing that positive example of, you know, somebody just like me was able to do this and, you know, come out with their period. Um, I also have a Facebook support group that ah, is, great. you know, much more of the same. I mean, every day now there are people posting about getting their periods back. Um, and so I think having that example of, you know, somebody else who's doing exactly the same things and feeling the same things and then is able to make these changes and get their periods back. I think that's, um, you know, that's a big part of why the type A women are able to, to do this because they have the evidence uh, in front of them. Okay. So where to now with your research? It's got to continue. I mean, this is important stuff and HA is rife and growing throughout the community. So I'm actually, I, I've got a couple things in the works. Um, I'm working with a, diet, a dietitian in Australia, actually, Fiona Sutherland. Um, we're working on a course for dietitians, actually, to help them understand HA and then coach their patients. Um, because I think so, sort of spreading awareness both in the community of dietitians and hopefully at some point in the medical field um, would, be, would be really beneficial. Um, I'm also thinking about writing a book for teenagers because I think oh, that this Christ. is something that's experienced in a lot of younger women. And my book is very pregnancy-focused because that was sort of my, like, how I came to it. And many of the women that, that I that I followed for my survey, you know, the often it doesn't even kind of impinge on your consciousness that this is a problem until you want to get pregnant because then obviously you need to be ovulating and getting your period because you otherwise you can't get pregnant. Um, so I think working on a book for teens is um, definitely something that, that, that I'm planning to do in the next year or two as well. Gotcha. And for further information where practitioners can get good information where they can learn, you know, you're obviously working on a course for dietitians. Seems to be by a couple of your comments that doctors need to um, have a course as well. Yeah. Where's good information <laughs> but, where we can glean? Um, so the, the medical community is a hard one to break into because I don't have an MD. I have a PhD. And yep. so there tends to be, um, you know, maybe some thinking that I don't really know that well what I'm talking about. So I, I know there are some medical practitioners who have read my book and recommend it, um, but I don't really know how to break into that community. Um, so that's that's something that I'd love to work on, but I, I haven't really gotten there yet. Nicola Rinaldi, I can't thank you enough. Like you, you've opened my eyes, certainly, and I need to do some extra learning on prolactin, I know. But thank you so much for taking us through what is an otherwise very confounding and it's not just distressing, but it leaves a lot of women distraught mm -hmm. when, you know, it, it ends up adding to the stressor of infertility and how they can't get pregnant. So thank you so much for taking us through at least some of the ways in which we can help these women nourish their hypothalamuses and nourish their bodies indeed back to um, fertility and, and health. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. 
You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.